If you have your Bibles with you today, would you turn to Luke chapter 23? And uh, it's going to be kind of a little bit different. Um, we're going to try to cram in like a Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter all into one today. So we're going to come in at you fast and furious. We'll have the scriptures up on the screen and you can hang with us. And when I was a kid, my dad uh, worked at a campground. He was the director manager of a camp, still is. And so he had lots of employees that would work for him. And I just grew up hanging out with the, the high schoolers that he would hire to work for him in the summertime, which isn't always a great idea, but it was a lot of fun for me. And I remember this one year, there was this kid he hired named Matt. And I thought Matt was the coolest guy in the world because he had long hair, he had an earring, and he wore Jimi Hendrix t-shirts. He's actually the one that introduced me to Jimi Hendrix. And I'm pretty sure now that he was a stoner, <laughs> but um, as a kid, like, you don't pick up on that stuff. You just idolize them because they're older and cool. And so he was, you know, got me into listening to Jimi Hendrix, and he'd let me tag along. He'd be cleaning toilets, and I'd just sit on the golf cart, ride around with him, and think he's the coolest guy in the world because he's a high schooler cleaning toilets for a summer job. I'm like, this is what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> but I remember one day, we're playing basketball. It's after hours, and, and we're out shooting hoops together, and... Uh, we had this little place where like, we'd put our belongings, like wallets, keys, hats, stuff like that, so they wouldn't get messed up or lost. And he had his Detroit Tigers baseball hat that he took off and he put inside of the little box where he kept our belongings. And then after we were done, he went back to his place, and I went back to my house. And I came out later that night to, to practice more, and I noticed that his Detroit Tigers baseball hat was still in there. And I was like, if I have Matt's hat, I'm cool like Matt. And so instead of getting it for him and retrieving it and giving it to him the next day, I took it to my room and I hid it underneath my bed. I stole his hat because I thought, you know, that was like the secret. It was like Samson. His secret to strength was his hair. Matt's secret to being cool was his hat. And so I took his hat and I'd wear it in my room with the door shut and locked and it was way too big for me. But I was like, yeah, I'm cool now. But then what happened is I started to feel guilty about it because Matt's looking around for his hat. And I'm his friend you know, he's been letting me tag along, uh, and I'm like, you know, nine years old, and he's 16, and so he's been very gracious and allowing me to tag along and annoy him, and I stole his hat, and he's looking on, I know he's trying to find it, but I can't let him know that I have it. So what I do is I take it back, and I put it somewhere else. I'm like, oh, Matt, here's your hat. You know, ha I found it for you. And so he never knew that I'd stolen it from him, but I had stolen the hat, I hid it, and then I tried to give it back to him in a way so he wouldn't know what it was that I'd done. Now, Matt never knew. He still, to this day, never knows unless he listens to this online or shows up at the next service. Please, Jesus, no. But, <laughs> but what happened was it destroyed my relationship with Matt because I had guilt, I had shame about what I had done. Even if he didn't know, even if I told him, he'd probably, hey, man, that's cool. No, we're fine. But just knowing that I had done this thing to someone who had taken such good care of me, someone that I looked up to so much, had made it so that I distanced myself from Matt and I didn't hang out with him anymore after that. And he was kind of like, hey, Jeremy, you want to go canoeing? I'm like, no, Matt, that's cool. Because I was just eaten up by the guilt and the shame of what it was that I'd done to him. And that's something that's not unique to me. That's something that's part of being human. You guys all probably have a relationship like that in your life where there was some time where you did something that wronged someone else and whether they ever knew about it or not or even if you apologized to them and they forgave you, it still created distance in that relationship because there was guilt and there was shame about it, what it was that you had done. Maybe something that you did or said, something you didn't do, something you forgot, whatever it is. 
and almost for every one of us, I would venture, there's been a relationship that has been destroyed or there's been considerable distance introduced into what was once a close relationship because of something that we did and the guilt that we have because of that. And that's not just something that we have with each other. It's something that we have with God as well. Because every single one of us, there's been a time in our life where we know that we've done something that went against God's will for us. We know that God loves us and he cares for us so much and he has good plans and desires. He wants to bless us. But we made a decision at some point to do something where we went against him and now it makes it so that we feel distant from him because of the sin that we've committed. And the guilt and the shame make us that instead of wanting to come to God and spend time in his presence, it makes it so we want to do everything that we can to avoid him. I can't tell you how many people I invite to church, like, oh no, I can't go there, you don't know what I've done. I'm like, it doesn't matter. But there's this idea of like, I can't go in your church, you know, lightning would strike me. And I'm like, that, that doesn't happen, but that happens more when you're golfing in thunderstorms as opposed to when you're walking into churches. That's not a real thing. But it's because people recognize and they have this idea that I can't approach God because there's something that I've done that makes it so that God wouldn't want me to be near him. Guilt and shame and condemnation destroy our relationship with Jesus and it makes it so that we don't ever want to come close to him again because of that guilt. It makes it so we just want to do everything we can to avoid him and to get away from him. And that's something that's been going on all throughout humanity. And I think the question for a lot of people is, is that the way that life has to be? Do I have to live uh, as an agnostic, basically acknowledging that there is a God, but that I can't be close to him because of my sinfulness and because of his holiness and goodness? Or is there a way that I can somehow be reconciled to God and I can have the guilt and the shame removed from me so that I can more than just acknowledge that there's a God, more than just try to follow him the best I can, but actually be able to have relationship with him where I feel closeness to God and I know him and I hear him speak to me and I'm able to speak to him. Is that something that's even possible for humanity. And to discover the answer to that, we have to go back and look at the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Now last Sunday was Palm Sunday, which is where Jesus, after three years of his earthly ministry, he's now going into Jerusalem, and when he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, everybody welcomes him as the Savior. They think Jesus is the Messiah who's coming to save them, who's coming to set them free. And so they go out there and they cast their coats on the ground and they're throwing palm branches down and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're celebrating going nuts because they think that their Messiah has come now and everything is going to change for them. They're going to be saved. Everything that God has promised, every hope is going to be realized in this person, Jesus. And then Jesus goes and he starts doing things that they weren't expecting. See, they thought that Jesus was going to come and solve their biggest problem, which was that they were under a Roman occupation. They were in a free country. They were being horribly oppressed. They thought that Jesus would come and he would make them powerful, that he would make them rich, that he would fulfill all of the physical desires that they have in life. But instead what Jesus does is he starts teaching them about prayer. He starts teaching them about faith. Instead of leading an armed rebellion against Rome to overthrow the shackles of an oppressive and tyrannical government, he starts telling them what you guys need to do is you need to pray and you need to have faith and that that's how things happen is through your faith and your prayer. He starts telling them that bigger than what the Roman government is doing and the people around you are doing is what you're doing. He says you guys need to worry about being obedient to the call of God on your life. You don't need to worry about what everybody else is doing and look for God to change them. You need to look to what it is that God's called you to do. 
He starts going, instead of going to the religious people and the elites that they've all been looking up to, he begins to criticize them, and he starts inviting the drunkards. He starts inviting the tax collectors. He starts inviting the prostitutes to come into him, to hang out with him. In fact, he has a prostitute that comes and washes his feet. A prostitute touches him. Which if he's a, a rabbi, a religious teacher, if he's a Messiah, there's no way he can allow someone like a prostitute to come and to touch his feet and to weep over him. So then, he, this is the best one. This is probably the nail in the coffin. He says, you should pay your taxes. <laughs> Come on, Jesus. You had to go there. <laughs> you should pay your taxes. And what happens is they start saying, this Jesus, he's not the Messiah. He's not doing any of the things that I thought that he would do. If he really is the Messiah, why is he doing these things? If he really is the Messiah, why are these things happening to us? He isn't giving us any of the answers for any of the things that we're looking for. And so they have a moment where they say basically, hey Jesus, thanks for everything, but I've decided I'm going to start seeing other Messiahs. <laughs> and that's essentially what happens because they plot against Jesus. They have him arrested and brought up on false charges. He goes on trial before Pilate, who's the Roman governor, there's the whole trial and everything. And Pilate says, I can find absolutely no reason to charge this man. There's nothing that he's done wrong. But they still are saying, you gotta do something. You gotta do something to this Jesus. And so he says, okay, I've got a no-brainer way that I can get out of this. There was a, a tradition that they had where every Passover, the Roman governor would allow one person that had a death penalty on them, a prisoner that received a death penalty, to be pardoned and be able to be released. That was a way to keep the Jewish people appeased and show how kind and understanding the Roman government was. And so he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this man Barabbas, who was arrested, he was a murderer, he had incited a violent mob, he was an insurrectionist against Rome, he was trying to violently overthrow Rome, which is why he was arrested and giving a death sentence. He says, I'm going to take this known, terrible person, and I'm going to put it up for a vote, say, I'm going to release to you guys either Barabbas, this terrible murderer, or I'm going to release to you Jesus. Who do you want? And they said, Barabbas. What they did in that was they said, we believe that Barabbas and his methods and his ways and who he is is able to be our Messiah better than Jesus. They rejected the Son of God. They rejected the true Messiah and Savior of all mankind and they chose Barabbas to be their savior. And not only did they choose and, and transfer Jesus' title of Messiah over to Barabbas, but they transferred the death penalty that Barabbas had received over to Jesus. Because when Pilate said, well then what do you want me to do with Jesus if you want Barabbas released to you? The same people who five days earlier had cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, all cried out, Crucify him. In five days. And that's something we've all done too. 
See, whether we were conscious of this idea or not is something we've done. We've looked at Jesus, the true Messiah, the Son of God, the one who really can come and save us and set us free and bring about the fulfillment of all of the hopes and the desires and the dreams that God has for us. We looked at him and we said, Jesus, you're not able to give me what it is that I want. And so I'm going to reject you as my Messiah and I'm going to look to something else to be my Messiah. Whether that for some people might be money because money is going to give you security, a security that no one can take from you, you think. You say, Jesus, you can't give me security, so I'm going to look to money to give me security. Or maybe it's status, because you say, Jesus, I don't find the acceptance that I need in you, so I'm going to look to other people. I'm going to try to elevate myself so other people look up to me and that they accept me. Maybe it's that it was materialism. You said, if I can just acquire enough things, then I'm going to have the joy that I've really been looking for that Jesus can't provide for me. Maybe it's been your relationships. Instead of looking to Jesus to be the one who fulfills all that you need, you're looking to someone else to to make you feel whole, to make you complete. And when we do these things, whether we realize it or not, what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus, you aren't the one who really is my Messiah. You aren't the one who's able to be my Savior. And instead, I'm going to look to Barabbas. I'm going to look to something else. And when we do that, we join in with the crowd by our actions, and we say crucify him. How do we come back from that? So I don't think this is a big revelation for most people. Most people live with this feeling. They live with the guilt that comes from having made these decisions. We're all a fallen people. We've all gone astray. We've all sinned against God. We have all at times said, Jesus, you aren't enough, and I have to look to something else or to someone else. We've all picked another Barabbas for our lives, and we have guilt and we have condemnation and shame that comes from that. Because maybe there was a time in our life where we looked to Jesus and we said, yes, you are God, you are my Savior, you're able to give me everything I want. We cried Hosanna. And then we became disappointed in him. And we began to look somewhere else. And maybe you're even starting to figure out that what you've been looking for can never provide you what it is that you wanted. And you recognize that Jesus really is the one that you need. But you feel guilt and you feel shame Because how could you have done that to God? How could he take you back after all of that? And so we go on, living apart from God, separated and distant from him, because we carry the guilt and the shame of the things that we've done. But to figure out the heart of God in all of this, we have to keep reading. Because here's what happens, is Jesus is let out, they beat him, they flog him, they put a crown of thorns on him as a way to mock him. They have him carry his own cross through the streets. Because of blood loss and exhaustion, he ends up collapsing, he can't carry his own cross anymore, and someone else has to pick it up and finish carrying it up the hill. They get to the top of the hill, they lay him out on the cross, they drive nails through his hands and through his feet, and they drop the cross into the hole in the ground and they raise it up. And they mock him and they taunt him and say, come down and save yourself if you're really the Messiah. If you're really the Savior, how come you can't even save yourself? And this is the way that Jesus responds to them. In Luke 23, verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. 
And what that means is it means that they don't understand the nature of what they're doing. They don't know that what they're doing is rejecting the Messiah. They don't know that they're rejecting and killing the author of life. They don't know that they've rejected relationship with the one who loves them, the one who's created them, who breathed life into them, who came to serve them and to save them. They don't understand that that's what they're doing. They don't understand that by doing this, they're farther separating themselves from me. Just like when I stole that hat from Matt, I didn't realize that what I was getting was guilt and shame. I thought I was getting a hat, but what I really got was guilt and shame. And just like these people and like all of us, we didn't realize that when we rejected Jesus, we were going to separate ourselves from God. We didn't recognize the guilt and the shame that it would bring upon us and the condemnation that we would feel for it. And Jesus is saying, forgive them because they don't understand what it is that they've done. He's not angry. He has every right in the world. To, you know, like, he could have saved himself. He could have called down fire. He could have done whatever he wanted. Yeah. But he expressed the heart of God in this. And that's why he calls out Father. And it reminds us, the relationship that we have with God is he is our Father. And that shows us what the heart of God is. Now, my son, uh, Ethan, who's here, first time in church, that's so awesome. Well, this is, so now I've got to tell a story about him. This gets awkward. Didn't think this went through. Someone else's son. <laughs> was playing with something that their dad had, that their dad had told him not to play with. And he broke it. And then he hid. And the dad's going, and he's looking around for his son, and he's crying out, Sammy, where are you? <laughs> And Sammy is in his room, a hiding in his closet. And so the dad says, hey, what's going on? Why are you hiding in your closet? You can tell something's up. And Sammy's like, hey, I, I broke blah, blah, blah. He's like, what? Like, yeah, and I was playing with it, and I wasn't supposed to, and I broke it. This has his head hanging down, not looking him in the eye. He starts crying. So the dad's like, what, what's wrong? Well, you, know, you weren't supposed to do that, but why are you crying? It's, it's going to be okay. We can fix that. Like, you're, you're in trouble, yeah, but you know, there's consequences for what you've done, but this, this doesn't mean I don't love you. Because what happened was, this is the heart of a child. When a child does something wrong, they run from their father. When a child does something wrong, they think that their actions have made it so that their father won't love them anymore so that there can't be a closeness and an intimacy in their relationship anymore. That's the heart of a child. But the heart of a father is to seek out the child and to forgive them. Yeah. Because more important than did you do something right or wrong, there are consequences for our wrong actions. The reason that we set up rules and regulations is because we want what's best for our children. But more important than that is that we love and we want restoration, we want relationship, we love our children. And so that's why Jesus is saying to us is that our God is a father and his heart isn't to condemn us. Jesus said, I didn't come in the world to condemn it. I came into the world to save it. I came to seek and to save which was lost. He had to seek because when we sinned, we ran away. We distanced ourselves. We wanted to do everything we could to get as far away from God as we could because we thought that he wouldn't be able to love us. He wouldn't be able to forgive us. But this is exactly what the heart of a father does. The heart of a father is always to forgive and to restore. And that's why Jesus says forgive them. Father, 
the relationship that we have, reveals the heart motivation, and then he says, forgive. And forgive means to cancel out a debt. Because when we sinned against God, we incurred a debt. And that penalty, that price that we had to pay for our sin is death. But what Jesus is saying is forgive them, cancel out the debt of death that they owe you. And it was more than just Jesus' desire. It was what he did. On that cross, Jesus canceled out that debt for us. And the way that he did that was he died for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And what that means is that on the cross, what Jesus did was he took the sin of all the world. He who had never sinned, Jesus lived a pure, spotless life. He's the only person who didn't owe that debt of sin, or that debt of death because of sin. But he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the debt that all humanity owes, I'm going to put it on myself, and I'm going to pick up the tab for all humanity. I'm going to be the one who dies. I'm going to pay that price so that that debt can be canceled out for everyone else. When I'm at a restaurant and I see someone that I know, one of my favorite things to do is to pay for their meal for them. And what that means is that they had a debt because they, uh, like, I know some people here who uh, love going to a restaurant, they always were like the grande burrito, the monster burrito, that's it. I know exactly how much it costs because I paid for it a few times. And uh, so they had a debt from the monster burrito that they ordered. It's like 1453 or something. And, and they owed that debt. And it wasn't just that the restaurant owner was like, ah, don't worry about it. If they just took off and ran out on the bill, they'd never be able to come back. But what I do is I say, I'm going to take their debt and I'm going to pay it for them so that they are in complete right standing. That debt has been removed from them. That's what Jesus did for us with our sin. He said, you guys have a debt. You owe death because of what you've done. You've rejected and you've rebelled against the holy God. You've cried out, crucify him. You chose Barabbas over Jesus. So the penalty for that is death. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of your sin on me and I'm going to completely pay the price for it. And when Jesus took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. Which means that now when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you and see the sins that you've committed. Because Jesus paid for all those sins, he looks at us and he sees someone that never sinned. There's no debt. He sees that we're just as righteous as Jesus is. The righteousness of Christ is on us. And this is what's so beautiful about it. Is before you ever even asked Jesus to forgive you, he did this for you. When you were living as far away from God as possible, he did this for you. It doesn't matter today if you're close to God, you're following him, or if you're far from him, he's already forgiven you. This is what it says. I love this verse. Romans 5 says in 6 through 8, For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Your sins have been paid for right now where you're at. 
whether you're following Jesus closely, whether you're far from God, whether you're questioning God, whether you don't even believe that there's a God. He loves you so much that before you ever decided to follow him, before you ever decided that you wanted to live a life for him, before you ever called on him, he loved you so much that he laid down his life for you to cancel out that debt that you owe. And it has nothing to do with us. That's when people say, God couldn't forgive me. He already did. When they say, I've done things that are too terrible, it didn't matter what you did. Jesus already paid that price for you. Not because of who you are or how worthy you are, but because of his great love for you. And not only did he die for us to pay that price for us, but he's reconciled us. It says this in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both us one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He didn't just forgive you, he's adopted you into his own family. There's no closer relationship than being family. There's no greater love that you have for anyone than that you have for your children. Jesus says, you might have been far from me. You were living as a slave to sin. You were living in rebellion against me. You openly rejected me. You might have despised me, but I loved you. And I have brought you into my own family so that you don't have to live far apart. You don't have to live trying to earn my love and my favor. You don't have to try to do all these other things. You just have to take on that new identity that I've made possible for you as a son or as a daughter in the house of God with all of the love and the affection that a father has to give their children and all of the uh, privileges and the blessings that come along with bearing the name of your father. My sister adopted twin boys out of the foster care system. And it wasn't based on anything they did. They, had incre- they were born at 24 weeks. It's a miracle that they're alive. All kinds of, uh, they're very high special needs children. They're third generation foster p- uh, kids. Their mom grew up in the foster system, had her first kid at 15. Uh, and then she, her daughter was taken away from her, grew up in the foster system, made terrible choices, had her first kid at 16. And then these kids were taken away from her and put in the foster system because for three generations, maybe beyond that, that I don't even know of, it was uh, drug abuse, It was assault, it was violence, it was domestic abuse being inflicted upon them. Uh, It was just poverty, everything that you can imagine that could possibly go wrong in someone's life for at least three generations have been happening inside of the lives of these people. But my sister said, you're coming into my family now. Not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but because I love you. And so these two twin boys are brought into the family. They were rescued out of that life that they had been living and their family had been living in. And they came in and they received a new identity. They received instant love that they didn't even know how to accept at the time. This is part of it for us, is you might not be able to take on that identity fully at the beginning. You might say, okay, I want to follow Jesus. I don't really feel a whole lot different now. I still have these things I'm dealing with. It takes time. It took time for these kids to learn how good and how loving their new parents were for them. But now they're walking in the blessing of that. And addiction, abuse, poverty, all of these things have been broken in their lives. 
They are the recipients of blessings that they didn't deserve, blessings that they didn't earn because they were reconciled and they were brought into a family that loves them. And that's what God's done for us. He didn't just forgive our sins. He gives us a new identity. He brings us into his own family. We had to change the way that we think. You're a son, you're a daughter, and God is your good, good father. And not only does he bring you into his family, but when you get brought into a family, something happens. You receive a new life. And these kids are living a life that is completely different than anything that ever would have been possible for them. And this is what it says. It's the same thing that happens to us. In Galatians 2.20, it says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what that's saying is that not only did Jesus forgive your sins and bring you into his family, but he's given you a new life. And that old life that you used to live, that was marked and defined by sin and hurt and brokenness and every other terrible thing, just as Jesus came and he identified with us in our humanity, now we get to identify with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection in the new life that he has. See, what happens was he was on the cross, he took that sin, and he carried it on himself. And when he was buried in the tomb, your sin died and was buried with him in the ground. And when he rose from the grave to new life, you receive new life as well. And so that old you that did sin, that old life that was marked by all of these other things and a rejection of God and guilt and shame, that's been removed from you. You've been crucified with Christ. You don't live anymore. I think as Christians, we need to get a lot better at doing funerals for ourselves. We need to remember that we're dead and we've been buried and put in the ground. And this new life that we have now, after we make that decision to follow Jesus and receive his forgiveness, it's a new life. Not bound by the old things that used to bind us. Not controlled by the old things that used to control us. And here's this. Without the memory and without the guilt and the shame of the old life we used to live. That's been removed from us. That person's not alive anymore. They were crucified with Christ. And who I am now, that's a new person. When I decided to follow Jesus, when I asked for the forgiveness of my sins, when I made him the Lord of my life and said, I'm following you from this day forward, Jeremy died. And with him, all of his sin, his brokenness, his guilt, and his shame. And Christ came in me, and I received a new life. And now I'm just living that out. And since the old man's been dead and buried, this is what it means finally, is that he removed all that guilt and shame for us. Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Here's the thing, you're really good at remembering the things you've done. Other people are even better at pointing out the things that you used to do. But who doesn't remember is God. It says that he's chosen to remove the memory of our sin away from himself, as far as the east is from the west. It's infinitely separated from him. He looks at us and he sees a son, he sees a daughter. He doesn't see the sins that you used to commit because those were all put on Jesus. That old you is dead and you are a new creation now. What would your life look like if you could really take hold of this? If you were really able to believe that your sins had been paid for, that you had been brought into the family of God, that you were a child now, that you had new rights, you had new privileges that were a part of that, 
that God loves you so much that he gave himself for you, that his heart isn't to condemn you, his heart is to forgive you. What would your life look like if you could live free of the weight of guilt and shame? What would your life look like if you truly lived in the newness of the life that Jesus gave you? I believe it would transform you. I believe it would transform your workplace, your family, this church, this city. Everything would change. And it's all possible because of what Jesus has already done. I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes. We're just going to end with prayer at a time of just really seeking after God and, and seeing what it is that he's speaking to us this morning. God, thank you that you gave yourself for us. Thank you that this Easter we celebrate your death, your burial, and your resurrection. God, would you speak to every one of our hearts now? God, would you confirm this message in the hearts of people so they don't just hear it from me, but that they hear you speak it to them. And I think today is the day that God's wanting us to respond. I think that there's two types of people that, that God's really putting on my heart right now. And one is that you've made that decision to follow Jesus. You've been following after him. But you haven't really believed that the guilt and shame have been removed from you. And so even though you're following Jesus, he's forgiving your sins. You don't have closeness with God. You don't believe that he's really pouring out his blessings on you. There's that intimacy in your relationship because you keep remembering all of the things that you've done and thinking, how could God be close to me because of that? And this is what God would say to you this morning, I believe. Don't hold on to the things that I shed my blood to remove. If Jesus isn't holding on to those, then you shouldn't either. Live in the freedom that we have because our sins have been removed from us. We have the righteousness of Christ. Receive his love and his blessings on you. And the second is maybe this morning you've been living distant from God. You've looked to other messiahs. But this morning God's speaking to you and this morning you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You believe that Jesus is the Savior, that he did die on a cross to save you from your sins because of his great love for you. And this morning, God's calling you to follow him, to be brought into his family, to receive a new identity, and to receive new life. If that's you this morning, it says in the Bible that if you believe in your heart and if you confess with your mouth, that you will be saved. So believe in your heart. And I'd ask you just to combine one physical action with that. Would you just raise your hand with me this morning right now saying, yes, God, I want that. I believe this is my physical act saying that I do believe that you are the Messiah. I'm going to follow you. That's awesome. Thank you so much. All right, guys, let's pray this together this morning because it's good for us always to remember this and come back to this. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for dying for me when I was far from you. Jesus, I ask this morning that you would forgive me. I need you. From this day forward, I'm following you. I'm burying the old me and receiving new life. Reveal yourself to me this morning.
Make me your child. Send me the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey guys, if you prayed that prayer this morning, you are a new creation. You have been brought into the family of God and you are no longer one who has to live separated from God. New life for you. This is the start of a new day and there's no better day to make a decision to follow Jesus than on Easter.